0: The following is for information purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. All opinions and views expressed by the contributors to this podcast are in a personal capacity only. They do not represent the views of Progressive Equity Research or any other organisation mentioned in this podcast.
1: Money never sleeps, pal.
0: So, morning, Gareth. It's Friday, the 19th of January. It is. Uh, We're here to talk about what happened this week in markets, but we also have a special guest. So, joining us today to tell us about the Deutsche Numis indices is Scott Evans. I'm delighted to say he's here today to talk us through what the Deutsche Numis indices actually are and what they tell us about the UK stock market. Over to you, Scott.
2: Well, thanks very much, Jeremy and Gareth, and it's uh, good to be here. Yes, so the Deutsche Numus Indices, probably best if I give you a little bit of background to it, uh, what they are, their background, and who use them, and why they're important, actually, and actually what they say about the UK equity market. So very, very quickly, they were launched actually in 1987, and they were launched by Horge uh, and they were designed and managed by Professors Paul Marsh and Elroy Dimson of London Business School, who I work with. At the launch, the main index actually was the Horgavet Smaller Companies Index, and that's been probably one of the most well known small cap indices. Since Numis and now Deutsche Numis uh, acquired the business, uh, we've expanded it from covering not just the smaller end of the market. It's now a complete set of benchmarks. And that's the important thing is, is benchmarks that investors use to track and uh, manage and look at the performance of their funds. We produce them daily. They've got a back history to 1955. So they've got a very, very long history compared to other indices. I will skirt across that today because it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I'm actually going to try and minimise talking about any of the names because the names of the indices have now got quite long because they acquired an N with Numis and then they've acquired a D with Deutsche. So now everything is D-N-S-C-I-X-I-C and things like that. So I will avoid the actual names and just sort of try and talk about the small cap, mid-cap.
0: So small, small, medium, large is sort of... Maybe Small,
2: medium and large, yes, because there's all, one of the things which is important and we talk about a lot, and for most people it would be quite dull, is that what the indices have always done, apart from being very long run and they cover the whole market, we always, always separated out, we did this before FTSE did it, investment companies or investment trusts. Just as a reminder, the, the small cap indices, which is what you know most people look at in terms of our indices, they're not based on numbers. So say, unlike say FTSE, which has the FTSE 250, FTSE 100, and then the remainder of the all share becomes small cap. So it's numbers. We do it on percentage of markets. So the smaller companies index is the bottom 10% of the main market. And the large cap index is based on the companies that make up 80% of the market capitalization. So it's always about the percentage of the market. And that's actually very important in terms of one of the highlights this year in terms of the shrinkage of the market. And I think this has been picked up in the press a lot over the last few years in terms of lack of IPOs, concentration of the market. And hopefully if we have time, we can go through that in in a little bit more detail. Very very quick rundown in terms of the highlights in terms of performance because most people know this is backward looking so they'll know what that is. But then maybe then maybe we can just pick up some of the more interesting I think elements uh, which came out of uh, two thousand and twenty three. So just in terms of index performance, this year was obviously a lot better than the year before when I was doing this last year. It was been a disaster. Only the top top largest companies have actually managed a positive performance. Everything else had underperformed. This year's better. If you're a small cap investor, small caps actually outperformed. Larger caps marginally. All of the indices were in a positive territory by the end of the year, apart from AIM, And that's maybe something we can discuss in a bit more detail. AIM's at its third really poor euro of performance at the, in, at the total market level. You, you, you bias against it in that sense, don't you? I'm not I sure. Think, you know, it, it's an interesting question and something we've looked at in terms of selection bias, especially within the indices in general. And what the answer to that could be? Well, you could say the same thing for the UK market in general. Yes. You had ARM, and obviously ARM yeah. was the big technology sector of the UK, and that disappeared. You have the same thing in terms of when you rebalance the indices, which we do every year, in terms of to bring in the new companies and and to get it back to where it should be after there's been acquisitions, etc. And what we haven't found funny enough and it's something which i had i had exactly the same view as you we've generally not found there's been this selection bias with aim quite often yes some of the bigger companies they go private okay so they list elsewhere but that's becoming the same now for the main market as we know we've seen a few very large companies leaving the successful uk companies listing in the us and we've seen that for aim they've had an element of that but the number of companies that have say transferred from AIM have been very successful and transferred from AIM to the main market, which would be an obvious choice of where the selection bias would hurt. They haven't performed any better on the main market as they would have been on on AIM.
0: But in essence, 2022 was an awful year for everybody, but particularly bad for smaller companies uh, rather than larger companies. 2023, you've had to wait till towards the end of the year, but smaller companies have come back with a vengeance and outperformed, in the UK at least, mainly, have outperformed larger companies. So what we're perhaps interested in, this smaller companies effect, the signs of life there. Is that is that fair to say?
2: I think there's absolutely and so for the UK you know small caps did outperform larger companies once you strip out all the investment uh, companies and last year was, sorry last year, 2022 was was very very different and as I said at the beginning it was really only the mega caps that you had, it was only the oil and financials that they did well and everything else did badly. This year was, I mean my intro to the annual review um, this year was if you wanted to characterise last year in terms of performance it was like some uh, Victorian era novel actually I was pointing to Dickens at the time, as in, you know, good start, really arduous and difficult middle and a very racy ending. Uh, <laughs> and that's what you happened. I mean, all the performance was, not so much for mid cap but all of the performance came in the last two months. Before that, small caps had been underperforming. Large, so large caps sort of, do uh, they trundled along, or it could be sort of like the the tortoise and the hare, but slightly in reverse, as, as in the hare sort of won in the end. But overall... Small caps did outperform, and I think this is the really important point to make. One of the things that we do, and and, and the nerdy stuff about the indices, is our long run performance, and we, and the reason it was launched in nineteen eighty seven was because of the the size premium, the positive size premium that had been identified in the U.S., and it had been shown that. Uh, U.S. smaller companies had had significantly outperformed larger companies over the long run. Hence, why the Hawke smaller companies index was launched, and why uh, it then became the, the, the Deutsche Numis indices. And we found, looking at all of the analysis back to 1955, uh, smaller companies had, on average, uh, outperformed large caps. Not every year; sometimes they underperform, but longer term, and that is still the same. Now, going back the 69-year history of our data and our indices, the annualized outperformance of small cap over large cap is about 3%. Now that may not seem that stunning, but that is over the longer term. And you know, there's some really uh, some charts that we like to show every year in terms of, you know, what's been the longer term performance of small caps versus large caps. And I think if anybody's here is listening, and they think, well, you know, it hasn't been so great in recent years. Well, here's a few little statistics. And I did say I wasn't going to do statistics, but I'm sorry, I'm I'm a statistician. So you're gonna have to have some. If you're just looking at the longer term and total returns is what we look at. And by that, that means looking at the capital gain and adding in your dividend as well. And dividends are very, very important when it comes to long run investment. You know, if you'd invested one pound in our in the large cap index in 1955, your total return over the 69 years, you would get £1,357 now. That's how much you've got back. So... That's not bad. Now, if you'd have gone, oh, let's have some mid caps and you're done into mid caps, you'd actually be your £1 would today, this is nominal, this is not in real, but I can give you some of the real statistics as well, in, in, taking into account inflation, you'd have £4,159. So that's looking better. Small caps, that would actually be your £1 would be worth nine, almost 9200 But if you'd invested into the real small caps and this is the bottom two percent of the market so they're not tiny tiny companies but they're the bottom bottom end of the of the deutsche Numus index and remember the average size in there is around about four hundred million you would have had your if you'd have invested in the real small caps, which is now the d n s c 1,000 XIC index, and in it that roll, rolls off, off the tongue. Trips off the tongue. Yeah. You would have 22,572 pounds. So over the longer term, small cap performance has been extremely strong. So that's what that so three percent performance.
0: So, so, so it's about thirty or forty times what you would get just in large cap over uh, that period.
2: Absolutely. So yeah. you know you would have had over the longer term, um, you would have had a substantial return over the longer term. It's not government bonds, it's not houses, it's not large cap, it is investing in the smaller end of the market that has generated by far the best returns, both in terms of the equity market and in terms of other assets.
1: I wonder if I could ask, Scott, to to, to go back to your um, analogy of the novel and the the, the steamy, exciting bit at the end, and just trying to work out how much of that can persist into 2024. Is there a view of how much of, of that performance in sort of effectively Q4 of 2023 how much of that was driven by MA and a the, the takeout premium that we saw, and how much of it is of genuine underlying recovery or stronger performance a, across the board in that small-cap part of the market?
2: Okay, very good question. And one of the things that we do do, in, we, we track all births and deaths that come into the market. We, and we look at the premiums and we look at what's happened. And funny enough, most of the action in, the, in acquisitions and takeouts last year was within AIM. I think there's 52 companies were acquired. Acquired, but that's completed, and there's probably about another 30 or 40 which are in discussions. But nearly all of that was in AIM, and it actually had a relatively small impact on AIM's performance. And so I think. To answer your question, and I haven't got the exact details, but it's something which we do calculate. The Most of the performance and the turnaround came in the market in terms of inflation expectations, rate expectations, and you had the the stunning performance, especially in the technology sector. The Magnificent Seven in, in the US, for example, that's why the US was a, a stunning market last year, you know, 20, 26% return. I think, yep, exactly what I thought. How much is this is being driven by... Uh, Companies being acquired. And I think it was much more a macro US interest rate inflation. That's what really drove the last uh, two months of racy performance in my Victorian novel. There's another important element there, and I think it goes to it, is in terms of small caps had almost been written off during the year. Mid caps had had a better, but mid caps are much more of a barometer yes. of, the, so of the economy.
0: The AIM, the AIM index in, during the year reached you know, a, a low, including COVID, very, yeah. very close to it, whereas all other indices were quite some way above the COVID low.
2: They, I mean, AIM from peak to trough was down 20% at one point. Yeah. Um, so it really had a difficult time. It did try to stage a recovery towards the end, but that actually may well be exactly what Gareth just said in terms of there was a bit of a bid premium because that's yeah. really when technology was a very, very poor performing sector, industry, or however you want to classify it, for AIM. Everyone's been looking at mega caps and that's what was driving the market. It drove it in 2002 and it was driving it in the US, as you've already said, but there was definitely a return to favour in small cap in the last part of the year. And whether that continues, who knows? I mean, we had a very good start that all of the small cap indices started incredibly well in January 2023. But then we had all sorts of issues, conflict, uh, interest rates, inflation uh, becoming it's it, it, we thought it'd been tamed and it hadn't. Um, so there was a, a lot of And October, especially with conflict in the Middle East, uh, that had a real knock on impact across yeah. the markets.
0: And of course, we started last year with everyone expecting a recession, and we're beginning this year with everyone expecting a dramatic fall in rates. The recession didn't happen, and one has to wonder how dramatic the fall in rates will be if and when it comes.
2: Yes, I mean, I've been discussing this in detail, and I think that the, the, the news which we're seeing now is that, you know, And I think the consensus has become that rate cutting in the short term is not really going to happen. You know, you're going to wait until probably the middle of the year until you start to see anything. You know, even though we are in election years, both in the UK and the US, um, the the, the, what's coming. And you saw the IMF report this week basically saying, please don't cut your rates. Uh, It's not the time to do it. And I, I don't know how much central banks listen to the IMF, but hopefully they do listen to them or how
0: much the bond market listens to the central banks i think that's the issue isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
2: well I, I don't i only i only do comparisons of of, of bonds i don't do uh, analysis of bonds
0: it's a um, and yeah, it's a good good opportunity maybe just to morph onto what have been in the last week the main and you touched on a few of them there scott what have been the main sort of macro drivers influences on the market and the one that i mean i just keep coming back to and keeping an eye on is the oil price, which particularly in the context of the uh, militant activity in the Red Sea, we haven't seen a a spike in the oil price um, as a result of that, which tells me the implication I draw from that is that whatever you think of the politics of the situation or the human tragedy, which is undeniable, the, the impact of this is Largely regional still, and uh, again, okay, we've got some supply chains uh, delays. Shipping to from from China to the to Europe is taking longer, but the actual impact. You know, there's a lot of talk about stubborn inflation, and a lot of it, and blaming it on military action. But the oil price isn't telling you that, and you know, the, normally you would see you know, obviously the dollar going up Well, the dollar has firmed, you know, as people go for a safe haven. But you would normally expect uh, if people were concerned that this would become become more of a regional conflict with wider implications, that we'd be having oil well above $90 a barrel. And it's still, last time I checked, below 80. So inflation is definitely proving, despite that, inflation is, we've seen uh, inflation is proving stickier than we we thought before Christmas.
2: Mm. I think inflation remains, it is, it is, I mean, we've, we've seen historically inflation, it's pretty hard to tame inflation, especially when you have uh, wage growth the way it's been. But just going back to to oil, and I think it's, it's very important because the oil price has been obviously been a big driver uh, for the rest of the equity market as well. And it's something which I've been discussing a lot. So first of all, on oil, it's, it's always about demand and supply. And and you generally think, well, given conflict in the Middle East that we've seen, we've seen that OPEC plus has been trying heavily to restrict uh, supply. You would assume that um, oil price was going to be being being pushed upwards, and it hasn't. And I think there's a number of issues here. One is obviously you've got US supply that has been significantly increased. You've had how strong OPEC type plus has been in, in 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 its ability to reduce supply. I think has become relatively limited.
0: Well, not very, because Angola's left left the party, haven't they? Those exactly. And the it. other yeah. thing is,
2: you know, how much is this is about demand you know is is,
0: yeah this is it yeah yeah, absolutely yeah
2: is the global economy on the precipice i that is i'm not i'm not going to be on your show here saying yes it's all we're all going to hell in a handbasket but
0: But we're all going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket
2: but it seems to me to be saying that actually all of the elements are there for the oil price to be 20 or 30 percent higher than it is but but it's not budget
0: one, I, read it, I read something the other day and one thing, you know, with the election year, you know, one of the things Joe Biden will not be boasting about is the US in 2023, if you include oil and all other related products, they're getting out of the ground through fracking shale. 2023, they were the world's largest producer of oil ever, of any country in the world, including Saudi Arabia. They are huge. You know, And, and Saudi show every indication of almost giving up the ghost. Giving yeah. up the game, you know, and, and I, I think that's a very interesting dynamic, and it's very interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, we sorry,
1: kind of made man. the point. We made the point. um I think when we spoke last week as well, that as we move through twenty twenty four and the, the the prospect or the the realization that Donald Trump could be our next president or could be their next president, that if anything will ensure that the um, production of oil in the US will continue or accelerate. So so markets well, might ironically be reassured that 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 could be a sort of a deflationary. Um, or, you know, abundance of energy at at relatively low cost could be a good thing to reassure markets.
0: Yes. In the short term, I mean, the the figures this week, despite wage growth moderation, uh, UK inflation is, you know, has gone up uh, at the back end of last year, where everyone was thinking it was going to be flat or start going down. It's quite interesting. People, and I'd quote capital economics on this, were saying that with our slightly unusual energy price cap and the base combined with the base effects of high inflation in March and April last year, they're saying, and I don't think they're alone, that UK inflation can fall in March and April. It might have be having a bit of a tough time at the moment. But it can fall so, so sharply that by April, they're saying it could be as low as 1.7% of the headline level. And below that, being reported in Europe and the US, which would be extraordinary. I'd be very interested to see how the media cope with that one, if it were to be true. It does point to you know quite a racy time in markets, if inflation at 1.7%, and base rates at whatever it is, five and a bit percent, yeah. that 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 could look quite tasty in terms yeah. of the downward trajectory of um of rates combined with about that sort of time we're going to be getting a the sort of pre-election budget as well
2: yeah. I mean i think you know obviously rates and ex- expectations and inflation have been a big driver of equity market performance financial market performance uh over the last couple of years the uk as you know has got a pretty poor history when it comes to control of inflation um especially in the in from the 70s onwards and we were and i think the, the 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 structure of the uk economy at the moment makes it a little bit more tricky to control it but I, I, I totally, what, what what you've discussed, and I think this has been brought up as well um, in, in various other places, I know the, the Financial Times has been pushing it, that actually core inflation is probably a lot le- could become a lot lower than yeah. headline inflation is currently predicting. And, you know, that, that, that may well be the case. And I think at that point, the Bank of England may have to you know if it if that is with you know we started seeing a pickup in unemployment and what have you, which at the moment we're not really seeing, we may start to see some fast rate cutting. If that was the case, that is a pretty good environment for for small caps as long as we're not going into recession. so it's a it's a really, really tricky juggling act between rate cutting, inflation taming. And you know, not going into recession. I mean, everyone thought the U.S. was going to have a tricky time of it, and it massively outperformed. You know, yeah. possibly the UK may do the same thing.
1: Yeah, and interesting. Just just before we um, look at some more sort of company-specific news, there there is a, a sort of a corporate angle or a, a quoted company angle around some of that um, the, the risks or the challenges around the the, the tragedy and the conflict in, in the Middle East at the moment. I was talking to a couple of companies during the course of this week, and and their view on the supply chain risks. And I think a lot of people have been highlighting the fact you know, that the journeys are taking longer, the ships have been diverted and it's more expensive. Um, and there are, I think it's about an extra 10 days in each direction that it's, it's taking. The, the comments that I've heard from, from a couple of our clients have been actually companies that are exposed to this sort of supply chain, you know, physical goods movement reality. They've been dealing with difficulties like this for the past three years, all through COVID. And then through that mm-hmm. sort of challenging post COVID sort of supply chain normalization. They've been juggling these difficulties and and managing them for a very long time now. So it's not as if these new problems have come, I mean, yes, they've come out of the blue, but they've come on the back of similar types of problems over the last several quarters or many quarters, in fact. So corporates, I think, have become probably better at juggling and managing that than they might have been. Three or four years ago, certainly pre-COVID, um, those things would have been a real challenge or a major shock. These days, companies have had to, sadly, get used to dealing with these difficulties a lot more frequently. So, so their view was that that most businesses should be able to manage that additional disruption. So, hopefully, that's it. a
0: really, really interesting point because we we've talked about before that I mean, this isn't what we're experiencing or coming out of or you know the, the, the cycle that we're going through is not your normal. I hesitate to get too technical on the economics front with Scott on the line but it's not your classic business cycle recession it's more of a rolling recession because we turned the economy off and we turned it back on at different times in different places so you know the, the the question we've talked about is you know is China just behind everyone else or ahead of anybody else or is it so is it cyclical or is it structural but I mean to come back to the component you know the the, the learning for companies and that you just got to read rns's every day to see that Companies have learn, you know, the good quality companies and most listed companies are good quality businesses because they would, you know, there's a selection bias in favor of them. They've come to learn about, you know, very quickly that they have to learn and adapt to inflation, which most of them are saying in the UK is moderating, and the component and uh, shortages and uh, supply chain issues. And one of the companies that updated this week that I keep an eye on is Concurrent Technologies, which is um, – basically in 2023, missed a whole year because, uh, sorry, am I saying 2023 or 2022, but has basically missed 12 months of production um, over the, since the, um, uh, due to component shortages. And uh, in all that time, and the work that the Miles Adcock, the CEO has been doing there to re- rebuild the business, they've been winning new contracts. And they, they, to, to put it into context, they make rugged computer boards, largely for the defense industry. And of course, the defense industry, for reasons we know, we've talked about, is uh, is, is a growing market. Uh, they haven't, haven't In terms of orders, they haven't lost a beat, but they haven't been able to deliver them because each board has several thousand components on it. And if you're missing one component, you can't ship the board. So 2023 has been a year of unwinding all that and turning a, a lot of stock into a lot of cash as you say, it's something they've had to adapt to and seem to be now through that inflection point what tells you that it's a valuable business is that throughout all that, despite being on 40 week lead times for their customers at one point, haven't lost a single order from what we can tell. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, these companies are having to learn.
2: I think one other thing just to highlight, especially, uh, and it was just one point to break out from the indices that we do track the number of companies that. Leave the the market, and how many go v- become valueless? And one of the things that has surprised me you know, during the COVID and the post COVID period, where we thought everything was terrible, the actual number of companies delisting because they became valueless has actually been very very low. And we've had a few monster takeouts, but and I know that there are ONS data talking about the number of companies going to administration is high. But a lot of these companies were shell or very very tiny, so we haven't had this massive sort of uh, companies all going into a liquidation this year we had 22 companies in total that left the market valueless but their their total value was actually which is historically well, I that is on-
0: surprisingly
2: low but it i was is.
0: i was going to say in 2021 20 and 2021 going bust was made illegal wasn't it <laughs> because yeah. you, you couldn't go in you couldn't go bust because yeah. they give you they'd send you money yeah um well, <laughs> so, so there's this it's all part of this sort of excess savings and you know it happened to companies as well as companies were cushioned we were all cushioned, yeah. and you know, part of the normalization of rates has got to be that that cushion is now is either gone or is going. Yeah. So, I, I my fear is that those numbers are all going to. and I'm not sure. Not talking necessarily about quoted companies because I think there's a selection bias. But corporate failure is going to come. Is going to hit hit the headlines again. I think in 2024. That will be interesting, and that's something we, which
2: we are looking we, monitoring.
0: Because as Ruffa has been saying, you know, the only in- entities that can live at 5% interest rates are governments.
2: Yes. And in what what have governments been doing, governments or central banks have been providing a lot of liquidity uh, over the last, um, actually over the last decade. And well, it could continue forever. But then uh, one day, as I always used to say, remember, the infl- increasing money supply generally meant inflation went up and it didn't happen for years and years and years. And I couldn't work it out why. And now all of a sudden it has. So as you expand liquidity, ultimately, You do stoke the fire of inflation. So it can't continue indefinitely.
0: Well, yeah, I would say, yeah, uh, it all comes back to China, is our Gareth, which is our uh, our favorite topic of uh, the meeting point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So my riff on that is that the reason we didn't have the inflation post the financial crisis was because of the growth of China, China, the, the deflationary impact of the phenomenal growth of Chinese goods flooding western markets and making you know we've all got lots of cheap stuff as a result and for some reason that i think will become more apparent as we go through this year that stopped working and the big question is that a temporary phenomenon or a permanent one and i beginning to feel it could be more permanent than temporary let's say but you know could be well wrong on that but you know I, I i don't think that can be ignored in this Context, but we we've suffered a big hit on inflation, and it does look in the short term, at least, or, or medium term, the next one to six months, it looks like it's heading down and could be heading down quite sharply. Yeah,
1: should we talk about some other sort of yeah. corporate highlights in the, the the last week or so? We had a positive update from Gamma Communications, who have said that they they're in line with as of market consensus expectations that uh, that had risen. Across the back half of last year. So they seem to be trading nicely and uh, heading well into 2024 and still very cash generative. And they, they've uh, launched a, a process effectively to, to work out what they're going to do with the, the high levels of excess cash they seem to be enjoying. So that's a, that's a positive. Um, that, and a-
0: that gamma has been one of what I would say is sort of a strong cohort of mid-cap stocks that have not really put a foot wrong during the derating process that's gone on in the last few years. Don't think there's been any downgrades to numbers, certainly no profit warning or misses of estimates on their part. Yet if you look at where that share price is from the high, I mean it's about fifty percent of the high, the pre COVID high. Yeah. And continues to deliver, generates cash. Yeah, just w- real interesting one that
1: I think. Yeah, no, it's a phenomenal story, and it looks like there's there's still more to come across the rest of 2024.
0: Yeah, no, it was a good update. Okay, we'll call it a wrap on this one. Uh, thanks both for your time, particularly Scott for giving us that great run through on market indices. Who would ever have thought market indices could be so interesting? Thank you, Scott, and look forward to uh, uh, talking to you again soon.
2: Great, thanks very much. See you.
1: Brought to you by Progressive Equity.